0: So today our very special guest is Dr. Megan Lavengood. We are so excited to have you on our show to talk about timbre, synthesizers, pop music, maybe even some NSYNC. Maybe we get to talk about (laughs) some NSYNC or Britney Spears maybe. Um, But we uh, are so delighted to have you on. But we always like to start each episode with just asking our guests a little bit about how um, they got into music theory. And so, you know, for you, you know, how did you get into music theory and what was your gateway theory textbook? You know, what was it? Was it a Ben yeah. word? <laughs> <Payne>?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think we used the Clendenning Marvin at nice. Ohio University when I was there. So that was an um, early edition. Yeah, yeah. It was Teal. So that's that's how many those several colors ago now. I think that right. is the first edition. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Um,
2: Most people go by the yeah. colors, too. That's a really good way of putting
1: it. <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> um, Yeah, I I Always knew I wanted to be a music major. Um, I started piano lessons when I was very young and um, Just did a lot of music activities my whole life and um I started as a piano performance major but I really hated practicing um, and especially things like scales and arpeggios and like really getting the finesse was not my jam. Um, I just wanted to read as much music as quickly as possible and um, yeah it just was not turning out to be a very good fit but I didn't know I was like having a bit of an identity crisis because I was like but music is what I do this is like this is my thing, and I'm good at it in other ways, but I'm not good at it, like, I don't care about my trills, like, they're good enough, you know? But um, someone was like, well, you're good in music theory class, have you thought about majoring in music theory? And I was like, can you do that? And they were like, yeah, you can do that. And I was like, interesting. And so I talked to my theory professor, and uh, yeah, she was like, yep, we have a music theory major, you could do that, you'll have to write a bunch of papers, take a bunch of theory classes, and, do some composition as well. And I was like, yeah, that all sounds pretty fun. So uh, yeah, and then I just stayed in school the whole time, just got all my degrees in music theory. Um, it's turned out, it's, it definitely plays to my strengths better than (laughs) piano performance i still enjoy playing piano a lot um but you know just for fun Mm -hmm. and um i started singing when i lived in new york um i started singing in renaissance quartets started getting paid for that so that was cool um but that pandemic kind of murdered that for me so um yeah still still do music but uh the thing about i brought up the renaissance quartets because they're The gigs are church gigs, and we're just sight reading new repertoire every week, Mm -hmm. and that. So it's like that kind of thing. That kind of thing is my jam. I love like, (laughs) let's throw this together a half hour before service, Mm -hmm. and if you mess up, you got to keep going because we're not stopping. You know, (laughs) that's
0: (laughs) that's how I like to approach performance. Yeah, Yeah, that would be a fun thing to take your like all skill students to, because that's like. In real time, like, let's Mm -hmm. see how it actually works, because we tell our students all the time, you know, keep going, you know, look ahead, all these things. And you are you are doing it, you know, every Sunday. Right. I'm totally out of touch with teaching
1: oral skills because that was just like that's what I did for Mm -hmm. such a long time. And so. Like to me, it doesn't stress me out. Um, I'm very confident. Like it's just normal to me. So yeah, I try not to teach oral skills to anybody because I'm like, come
3: on, isn't it fun? Aren't you excited? Like keep going, what's wrong? Right. Well, I think one of the things in oral skills training, we often prioritize pitch over Mm -hmm. rhythm and flow. Mm -hmm. And in reality, when you are singing, if you're performing or sight reading something, rhythm and flow is way more important than pitch accuracy. You can sing a wrong note and keep going and most people aren't going to know. But if you stop or, you know, have a halt in your rhythm, everyone's going to know. So I've thought a lot about that in the last few years, kind of changed how I grade aural skills because I used to make pitch worth more than rhythm and eventually Mm -hmm. I was like, why? It's not more important. It's just as important that a student get from a to z you yeah. know without stopping
1: yeah absolutely and it's such a hard thing to over i remember when i was learning piano as a kid to having like really overcome the stutter impulse mm-hmm. like when you mess something up to keep trying to hit it again but luckily i had a teacher that was like don't do that never do that and he would just be like <laughs> "Ah!" every time i did it <laughs> you know until i stopped
0: <laughs> doing it
1: yeah does that answer the question
0: yes absolutely (laughs) and and you're not alone i feel like most people stumble upon music theory it's this like secret that we didn't know existed and then a professor or a teacher is like hey by the way what about this and you're like that's that's where i need to be i think gary karpinski has been our only guest who was like i knew i wanted to do music theory when i was like you know 15 years old or something like that yeah well (laughs) who knows that
1: it's even a thing
0: right right yeah maybe we need to like. Get ourselves out there and like we exist. So. <laughs> there are dozens of us, <laughs>
3: <laughs> Do- dozens, <laughs> tens and tens.
0: <laughs> That's all yeah. our listenership, actually. Yeah. Tens and tens of music theorists. Um, and so, now, pivoting from you know your your experience singing Renaissance music and things like that, uh, much of what you have uh, kind of been doing recently. Um, scholarly work has been in analyzing popular music and Mm -hmm. particularly looking at um, aspects of popular music that are not tied to exclusively pitch or meter or harmony. And so talk to us a little bit about what your interest is in pop music in those other areas like timbre and how we can teach those things to our students.
1: I... When I read your interview questions I was like, uh oh, because I the truth is I don't really teach timbre to my undergraduate students. And it's because I'm afraid I won't be able to rein it in enough <laughs> to like to teach it to them in an effective way. It's also just a little bit of like cowardice, I think, because <laughs> I've heard people say that they've taught that that article to their undergraduate students with much success. But for some reason, I'm like, no, it's not going to work. So I haven't I haven't done it yet. Um, but I teach to my graduate students all the time, and um, and it works great. So I don't know what the problem is for me. But anyway. Um, yeah, I've always been attracted to timbre. When I when I was first trying to, I was one of those people that didn't know what my dissertation was going to be about until like the last possible minute. Um, I thought it. Well, first I was like, should I do? pop music stuff or should I do like Bach fugues and it was like (laughs) no not the Bach fugues so it ended up being the um ended up being the pop music angle and from there I really wanted to talk about um like Sufjan Stevens was really my jam at the time and what I liked so much and still do about Sufjan Stevens is his use of timbre and the the weird the weird sounds that um that he puts together and um just sounded so different to me from a lot of other popular music. And so we were going to uh, email his record label, Asthmatic Kitty, and ask for some of the uh, like master tracks, because for anal- analyzing timbre the way that I do, it really helps to have individually recorded instruments rather than the full texture. And at first they were like, yeah, that'd be great, sure, I'm sure, I'm sure he'll be on board with that. Um, it seems like the kind of thing he'd be into, and I was like, sweet. And then they got back to me and they were like, actually, he told us that he records on all this old-fashioned, terrible analog equipment. And so there's really no, like, master track. Like, a bunch of things are kind of pre-mixed before they get to the master track because he recorded them on, like, a cassette tape, you know? It's very
0: (gasps) and Stevens. Yeah. In a cabin in Michigan or something. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I was like, of course. Okay. So scrapped that idea just started to think like okay my i a keyboardist so i wanted to do something keyboardy and i was like i love like the Hammond B3 organ and then i was like i don't have access to a Hammond B3 organ and i lived in a one bedroom apartment in brooklyn so i was like where is it going to go if i buy one and <laughs> they cost you know a couple thousand dollars and then you have to pay someone to move it it's like okay this isn't practical and my advisor was like, Why don't you look into the Yamaha DX seven? Because he's a he was a big eighties guy. He played plays in a cover band and um knows a lot about that repertoire. And he was like, There are still plenty of them on the used market. It'll only set you back like five hundred dollars and it's just you know, it's just a synthesizer keyboard, so it's like a regular regular size keyboard that definitely can right. fit in the apartment. And um and it was really important and nobody's really done much work on it and I was like okay so we went that direction um but like it was really like the Sufjan stuff that made me interested in timbre in the first place that's really what I wanted to talk about and then I just kind of I think it also went along with um with key, I don't know keyboard stuff and synthesizers and stuff like that because um, yeah I talked about My singing career as it was mostly just Renaissance music, Renaissance choral music. But um, as far as playing piano goes, like growing up, I was always playing a lot of pop music um, and only played classical music to the extent that it would get me into music school. (laughs) So yeah, Um, everything just kind of came together eventually, but it took a little while to get there.
0: So if people are not familiar with what a DX7 sounds like, can you direct them to maybe an artist or, or maybe a song that, like, that sound, that's a DX7?
1: Yeah, it's the electric piano sound that most people recognize the most easily, um, and it sounds somewhat like the sound in uh, Dire Dire Docks from Super Mario sixty four. I feel like a lot of people know that water level in Super Mario sixty four. Yes.
3: Um,
1: obviously, that's not actually that. a DX seven, but it's it's very much like that sound. Um, it's it's kind of buried in the mix in that in Careless Whisper by George Michael. Um, and yeah it's 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 that it's that 80s very extremely 80s ballad electric piano sound yeah
2: (laughs) you were saying that you had like a hesitation to teach timbre to undergrads and i think that's really relatable to a lot of people out there that like we have like we want to teach timbre we want to be inclusive in our pedagogy with different parameters of music but then you get to the point where, how do I actually do that? You know, What exactly am I teaching in terms of timbre? Because even timbre itself, there's so many different ways you can go about it. And then you get back to the drawing board and you're like, okay, well where should I start? Or what is one particular lesson that I could do? So maybe, I view you as like a real expert, a to go-to. What do you recommend for those out there that are listening and saying to themselves, what am I gonna do in my class? timbre is there something you know obviously we don't want to do just one class on timbre and leave it alone that's not what I'm saying you know I don't want to get Mm. misinterpreted but I'm saying let's say you sit down and you think I really want to focus on I want to focus on timbre right Mm
0: -hmm.
2: what is it that you would recommend doing as a as a even just a starting point
1: like, one that I think works really well is actually not my article, but um, Kate Heidemann's 2016 MTO article, which is about vocal timbre, and the reason I like that one, so my my worry with my approach is that it's a little bit um, technological, like, you have to do stuff on your computer. and. Kids these days, they can't use computers. You know what I mean? It's true. It's not a joke.
3: <laughs> no, it, it is true. Yeah. yeah,
1: they're really bad at using their computers, and I'm like a little bit afraid of asking them to like open an MP3, for example, in in a program. Um, and so I kind of don't want to like get into that can of worms with them. I'm like afraid of troubleshooting their technology forever. Um, so. Anyway, so Kate Heidemann's article is all about like the importance of mimesis, of, of, of um, the, the cognitive process of like wanting to mimic the vocal sounds that you're hearing, and the way that that can allow you to kind of embody the different timbres and help you to analyze it, actually, by observing the things that your body does when you imagine what it would be like to sing as these other people. And so that's a very low-tech way of approaching timbre that I find works really well um, because kind of anybody can do it. It requires people to be willing to feel a little bit silly as they try to mimic these timbres. Um, But another thing that's really cool about it is it lets vocalists have the upper hand on everybody else in the theory classroom, which is a feeling they don't often have. Um love And that. so my vocalists love that. <laughs> they love being like, "I get this. I know how to make my voice do that thing and like kind of getting to be the ones explaining it to the keyboardists, it's like, haha, you know. <laughs> so I feel like that's one of the most approachable ways to get into timbre. If you do have to do a quick in and out um, and you don't have a lot of lessons to spend on it, I think that might be the way that I would go because um, the way that I analyze timbre with like spectrograms and stuff, you're opening the audio file in a program like Sonic Visualizer. Sonic Visualizer as a program is just kind of a pain to use. It's like not super intuitive at all. It's very much like the way computer programs were when I was growing up, which is why I'm able to use it. But (laughs) like nowadays we expect a lot more out of our software in terms of user design. Than Sonic Visualizer gives us. And so I think it would require a more dedicated, extensive unit to do it that way. Yeah. But I think you could talk about like timbre adjacent things as well. You could talk about um, like texture and instrumentation without needing to get too much into that. Um, and that's kind of, that's also stuff that's really important and underemphasized in theory classes that I think could could be more useful
2: yeah for sure i've I started amber adjacent we had a thing where we identified <laughs> yeah. different layers and we had a right. chart that we kind of filled in and it was different it was all pop stuff yeah and i thought i don't know maybe this is a good starting point maybe it's not you know i was a, it was a try it was an attempt <laughs> i
1: think it's i think it's nice to have them be
3: aware of that because they maybe have not been
1: you know
2: yeah very yeah, true for sure.
3: yeah I've uh, started just even asking the question, What instruments do you hear Mm -hmm. uh, when I play a recording or something in class? Because it's amazing how how bad they are at answering that question. (laughs) Yeah. Um, They, you know, even on things like jazz tunes, I've had students call a clarinet a trumpet or, you know, I mean, just things where you're like, No, that's not what that is. So, I mean, just training them to think about, like, what are those individual sounds? Mm -hmm. is a step in the right direction and not something that we, it's certainly not something I experienced in theory class.
1: Yeah, definitely not, no.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and the reason why those sounds are in certain layers, right, you know, why is the trumpet playing the melody Mm -hmm. and not the bass clarinet or something like that? Like timbre is a big important thing in in the levels or the kind of the layers of a arrangement, right?
1: Mm Yeah, kind of related to that. I've started teaching um, topic theory a lot more in my undergraduate and graduate classrooms both because um, I find that a really good way to get into other aspects of music that maybe we don't usually get to talk about. And instrumentation is so important for topics that um, that's kind of another way in maybe that could be useful. Like, so if the bass clarinet is playing the melody what does that seem to suggest narratively about the music?
2: Right. That's awesome. Yeah, or even taking. Right. What I try to do also is uh, get two different versions of the same song.
1: Mm-hmm. That
2: way, you're purposely mm-hmm. looking at okay, it was the same, you know, lead sheet symbols or whatever, but what was it that was changed, and then why would you do that, or why does it make it sound different, and like questions like that.
1: Know, yeah.
2: As a as a starting point. I don't know. I was just spitballing, honestly. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but I think a lot of people are at the spitballing stage with this, you know?
0: Right. Yeah. Well, I think one of the reasons for this, all the spitballing, um, <laughs> is the lack of kind of terms and labels yeah. and all these things for these these concepts. And you've you've kind of coined some terms. I've, I love the compliment chorus, which is a great <laughs> SMT video um, that you, you put out a couple years ago.
3: Yeah. Um,
0: and, and other things. So can you talk to us about, you know, the challenge that that, that part of, of this analysis is, is that there isn't an agreed upon terms. And then yeah. the decision to be like, we're going to call it this. And <laughs> How does imposter syndrome set in with that type of yeah, activity? Yeah, that's
1: a great and complex question. Um, with the compliment chorus specifically, I should point out that my advisor, Mark Spicer, is the one who came up with the nice term. I called it something terrible that I can't remember anymore, like the alternate chorus or something that like is just so much more clumsy and dry. And he was like, the compliment chorus. And I was with like, oh, it's got the alliteration. It's just a nicer sounding word than alternate. And it's like more specific and more correct. Correct. and yeah. like I was like yep okay so um you know credit where credit is due I think Mark Spicer can be quite a wordsmith mm-hmm. um yeah so then with the timbre stuff that was really difficult but like so I, I should also say that like I decided on these terms for the most part when I was writing my dissertation, which is now one million years ago, and a lot of new timbre research has come out since then. But when I was reviewing the literature that was available to me at the time, uh, it was mostly like very scientific type words to describe timbre, and I was just and well, and all of the like all of the music information retrieval based literature and all of the cognition based literature all uses these technical terms as well, like um, spectral centroid, spectral flux, stuff like that. And I was like, I don't, that doesn't mean anything to like most musicians. And so I really wanted to keep kind of, kind of colloquial terms in, in play, but just like, we can still define, we can still say brightness. Means the spectral centroid measurement, but I think it's more helpful. I think it makes your work more intelligible to just go ahead and call it brightness. And you know, I'll leave it to somebody else to problematize that. But like, but I, yeah, I think it's okay. I think we can. I think we can say it's brightness. Um, like the cognition research has kind of shown that. And so, it's, yeah, it's, it's maybe a little bit imposter, imposter syndrome me because it's like well that's what that's what I think it sounds like so but I think most people agree I haven't really gotten much pushback on on any of the terms like people people seem to pretty much get it I did want it to just because we have so much intuitive metaphorical language that we just kind of absorb in our lives as musicians and it's like it's like an acquired language that you that you learn um, and don't think about too critically you just think about like oh I've heard people call this you don't even think about it you just because you hear people call this kind of thing warm you start calling it warm too and warm is one term that I really don't like because it can mean, Anything. And like my, basically what I say is, I think when people say timbres are warm, they just mean this is a sound that I like. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Uh I feel like in all instrument lessons, everybody is told to produce a good warm sound. But like what that means for their instrument is totally different from instrument to instrument. Like if you want it to be brighter or darker or whatever, it depends
3: on, it's like, Depends on what That's so true. Is. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about it like as someone who's a trained singer and a trained horn player. Yeah. And on horn, that means a completely different thing than if my voice teacher said that to me. Right. So even in those two contexts, in the same human being, it's not the same thing. Can you That's be really I'm curious if,
1: for you to be more
3: specific, like what you would interpret that to mean yeah. for different teachers? Well, I think on horn, if somebody told me to have a nice warm sound, I'm gonna go for not brassy, like a more kind of legato um richer toned sound mm-hmm. we don't use vibrato ever on horn but it would be like leaning in that direction where you've got mm-hmm. a really smooth flowing sound mm-hmm. on voice if they tell me to be warmer i'm going to be darker mhm so yeah if my voice teacher was like i need a warmer sound there she means don't be so forward yeah put it a little further back
1: yeah in yeah. your placement mhm yeah and i w- i do think those things probably both shy away from like it I think in both cases it means not too bright Mm -hmm. so it is in a way an opposition to brightness but also just that people throw the term around in other ways to like to talk about um talk about like lo-fi production mm. in like, you know, like the lo-fi trend, you know what I mean? Like yeah. lo-fi beats mm-hmm. to study mm-hmm. slash relax to or whatever. Um, <laughs> I feel like that's, that will get cold, warm, and it doesn't um, necessarily mean like the opposite of bright, but it just means kind of like, like chill. a bit gritty and yeah, yeah, chill, and just like makes me <laughs> yeah. feel cozy. makes me feel good. Like it can be, it can be that too. Mm. So um, anyway, this is a big tangent. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love it. I we like, like tangents. Because I, like, I totally
2: I, I, went with, like, the lower overtones interpretation of that. Mm-hmm. When you
1: it's say. like, it is part of that, but that's not the whole right. story, I think. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I th- I just think it's a really wishy-washy term sometimes. Yeah. Sounds um, like it, yeah. 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 I am now working on a new project with a dissertation advisee of mine who's now finished, so um, we're I was really, I, I really bought into his dissertation because he was gonna do stuff like analyzing timbre basically with my methodology, but he wanted to specialize it for unpitched metallic percussion, and so, which I don't really do at all in that article that you're talking about. I really focus a lot more on pitched sounds. And so um, he sort of came up with his own oppositional vocabulary based on his own spectrogram analyses of his own playing of different tambourines and triangles and crash cymbals. And he, came, he wants to use different terms because they reflect what percussionists say when they talk about the timbres of their instruments. Mm. And um, interesting to me is that there's different words for different instruments and even kind of like the same what I would think of as the same phenomenon in different instruments gets referred to differently depending on which instrument you're talking about, um, and so I kind of have to take his word on this because I'm not a percussionist. But um, yeah, like it'll be like oh we, it, it's called it's called we can call it bright brightness in like tambourines I think, but or, it's like brilliance in triangles
0: or maybe the other way around.
3: Oh, I could see that. Yeah. Stuff like that. Of, yeah. Yeah. Oh,
0: this makes so, me think. um, I hope I'm right about this, but I think I am, but there's actually a Fred Armisen um, little comedic bit because he's a drummer and he's talking about symbols and how, how all drummers describe every symbol they like as being warm. I see think, i think that i think he says warm in that i
1: didn't that even know bit. it's a fred Armisen bit but um that makes me feel very justified yeah. <laughs>
0: um so it's a thing but you know i'm a keyboardist too but when i think of warm i think of like a closely voiced like major ninth chord or something like that that's warm oh. to me yeah. um not necessarily the tone but like the, the well, the like, because piano,
1: home. like, basically can't sound right. Warm. <laughs> can't be warm,
0: right? Sorry, we're just <laughs> always like going to be like, dink, dink, dink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yep, never I crescendoing, just always different. <laughs> <a crescendo. laughs> <laughs> but that's that's so interesting. Um, I mean, just this little tangent, we're all coming to this different sound image for this yeah. one word. Mm-hmm. Um, can you imagine a point where we can? come to any type of agreement or like you know not with hun- warm <laughs> not with warm maybe not with warm warm will be like the cadential 6-4 yeah. of uh timbre <laughs> um <laughs> but do you can you imagine or, or what would it what would it take you know 100 years from now eventually to get to a point where we have these these kind of terms or language like we do in other areas or maybe if, is timbre too um slippery of a topic yeah. to really to do that
1: I think I think it might be. I think there's some things that we can really agree upon, and cognition research has kind of kind of shown that. I mentioned spectral centroid. The research is pretty strong that that correlates to what people would describe as brightness. Um, I can't remember what the fancy term is for what's basically hollowness, where like a clarinet timbre, where the even numbered overtones are are not sounded. But that's another one that's like pretty clearly like understood and correlates to language in a specific way among musicians. Um, there's there's another one, I think like just, uh, I think, well, spectral flux is like basically the attack profile. So I don't know. But um, there's certain terms that work better than others, I think. So like brightness and hollowness are pretty clear to people. And so I think by extension, um, darkness, and maybe like fullness which is what i say the opposite of hollow would be i think their opposite terms are likewise kind of kind of well understood but then there's always going to be these like yeah i don't know it would it would take like it would take a lot i I think it would take an agreement in the theory textbooks or something to kind of standardize (laughs) that language because like i said we just kind of receive it you know, in the wild, we pick it up on the job, and, mm-hmm. and nobody ever teaches us how to describe timbre. So we that's just true. go for it. We just, you just go with your gut, and you're like, it's, it sounds warm. Or, um, I mean, <laughs> other really obvious timbre adjectives are things that describe the materiality of the object, which is a big pet peeve for, uh, for my advisee. His name is Michael Barranco, by the way. Um, that's a really big pet peeve of his, when people are discussing percussion instruments, like, it sounds metallic. It's like, mm. yeah. True. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, not very helpful. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so we can agree on those terms, but it's maybe not super interesting
0: to do so. <laughs> right. We would have to talk about then? right? Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I wonder. Um, If you've had pushback from um, mentors or or, um, fellow theorists or anything in this kind of uh, analysis, and it could be, you know, maybe in the timbre area or maybe in the popular uh, kind of pop music area. Um, I love your, it was either going to be pop music or Bach, right? (laughs) I think like we all have this like, well, we should be analyzing, you know, Bach or Brahms or, you know, Schubert or something. But, you know, we, something pulls us in this direction. Yeah. Um, was it difficult for you to kind of go in this direction? Or did you get receive any feedback or pushback?
1: I did. I did get advised this way. Um, so I got my PhD at CUNY, where if I had done, if I'd gone the Bach route, I would have basically had to have Bill Rothstein be my advisor, versus to going the pop route, having Mark Spicer be my advisor. It was like, those are kind of, if I, it was like, it was known that that was who I would study with if I did either of these things. But so I set up a time to talk with Bill about it. And he was like very, like brutally honest. He was like, box studies is a really mean field. <laughs> Like, there's a lot of people who know a lot of stuff, and if you don't learn all of it, then nobody's gonna take you seriously. And so like, okay, you really like the well-tempered clavier, but like there's all these fugues in the organ works. Like how well do you know all the organ works and, and things like that? And you know, there he was just like, it's such a really well-established field. Um, yeah. And I, would, I was wanting to do like Shankarian analysis with it too. So like that, again, it's like, it's kind of a mean subfield of music theory. And he was basically like, I just don't think it's Mm -hmm. a good call. Like it's a hostile environment where people aren't gonna be that excited to hear about what you have to say. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, well, okay, that sounds good. Um, (laughs) Meanwhile, Mark Spicer is like, yeah, come over here, do this, we need this. And so that kind of definitely helped me make my decision. And uh, yeah, I had I really enjoyed Shankarian analysis. I do really like like early music. I love, I still love playing Bach and, um, but I'm really glad that I went the way it did. It's clear to me that this was like the better choice in retrospect, but like the Bach felt a lot more comfortable too, cause it's like, well, here's the methodology and, and here's the repertoire like that go, you know? And I, I had been educated really well in those areas. Um, Whereas I hadn't received any education on timbre, any formal education. I'd only taken one pop music course, which was a course on the Beatles. And so it was like, (laughs) it was very much like jumping into the deep end to decide to do my, my dissertation on timbre and pop music. And Mark Spicer isn't like a timbre expert, he's a pop music expert, but he's not a timbre expert. And so. Yeah, it was just, it was a lot more scary to go that way, but it worked out fine. Um, you know, got an outside reader to be the timbre expert and um, yeah, it's all, it's all gone okay <laughs> since then.
2: Well, that's the thing, that's what moves us forward. If you just do the thing that's the most typical, where do we go from there? You know what I mean? You just sheesh. Yeah. Man, that's that's yeah. Great. It's that's, people that's really always cool. laugh
1: when I tell them I thought about doing like like my other thought was to do shankarian analysis of Bach. They're like, no, <laughs> <laughs> they just start shaking their head immediately. <laughs> oh, that's funny, yeah. Uh, great. But I do, I do know a lot about shankarian analysis, actually. So <laughs> you just yeah. wouldn't know it from my research output. But I got that CUNY pedigree, you know. I don't think they're doing as much shanker anymore, but um. But, yeah, I, I took a lot of Shanker at CUNY and at Florida State, too, where I got my master's.
0: I, I know that you've also done some work in kind of video game music analysis, like going back to, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah. The original Sega. Um, what um, you're kind of exploring these other kind of musical genres that uh, we don't often um analyze i guess i mean ben Mm -hmm. i know you're into zelda um you love you love zelda but um can you talk to us about maybe how we should be more open to like you know video game music for example or other kind of musical genres that we find in our current context
1: yeah i think part of it is having the tools to talk about them so Mm -hmm. it kind of goes back to the timbre discussion in that way um and like likewise um again topic theory is really useful for talking about um, music and media. I'm teaching a music and media seminar this semester and um, I wanted it to just be video game music but um, the other faculty here were like I don't know if enough students would sign up for that so I just changed it to music and media in general and uh, talked about film music and video game music even though I honestly I told my students this too I was like I don't watch that many movies honestly so That's not going to be my expertise that I'm bringing to the table. But luckily, we have one of those people that's seen every movie ever and knows everything about everything. So luckily, that's been made up for by a student in the class. But (laughs) anyway, what was I talking about? Um, Topic theory is really useful for that, and I think, um, I mean, for video game music, there it's I can uh, I can only really speak to video game music for the reasons I just said. <laughs> for video game music, sure. there is still um, there's it's it's great because there's use of traditional tonal idioms, but then there's also pop idioms and jazz idioms and atonal idioms. Like you can find anything in video game music.
2: I was going to tell you I'm teaching this diatonic modes on Tuesday. Yeah. And I was going to start class with the Halo theme. You know, with that low uh-huh. E.
1: Uh-huh. And it
2: has the it's like a. Uh,
1: it's like a chant B with
2: two sharps and then sometimes you know you'll see the, the second sharp and the key signature sometimes you'll see it like in a transcription on the c sharp or whatnot and i was going to mm-hmm. start about talking about modes um with the mm-hmm. halo theme and i thought i think this is relatable but i don't know i'm just trying it and we'll see what happens but i think a lot of people know the halo theme from the game you know
3: mm-hmm.
1: yeah it's always it's hard for me to say i used to feel like i wasn't older enough than my students and I feel more and more obviously this is a banal statement but I feel more and more every year that like they're a different species and um I don't know do they have they played Halo I don't, I don't know. know I'm always so asking them questions like that them. and sometimes they're like yes and I'm like well I don't know. <laughs> I don't know I don't know what you
3: do <laughs> yeah I, my did students didn't them? know who Ben Folds was a couple exactly. weeks ago yeah. so yeah yeah, Are that was did one of those moments. Did not. I missed. Did that. not they had did. never heard of him. Yeah, they did not know. Ben had, not. had interesting. Had never heard of him, and I was like, okay, um, well, and yeah. Parks and Rec—that's another one. I was teaching yeah. sequences, I think, and yeah. I played the theme song to Parks and Rec, and a bunch of the students were like, I, "Is this from a this TV show?" Company. Yeah, yeah. I was now they all know The teaching. Office.
1: Yeah, I was shocked when I was teaching Neo Romanian. They were like, Oh, an L transformation is the office theme. I was like, I didn't even bother bringing that up because I thought none of you would watch that show. <laughs> but you are correct. It is an L transformation. Yeah. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah, so we're kind of like always like chasing after, you know, what students know, you know? Mm. Or or, yeah. or and I guess that might be the issue with doing popular styles is you know if you are doing you know classical or romantic period music you know you've got the repertoire there it doesn't matter mm-hmm. if they know it or not right um is it ever a challenge analyzing music that's more and teaching it meant to be disposable you know is that is that an issue i mean cuz popular music is yeah. this kind of consumable good right mm-hmm. you listen to it you get it stuck in your head and then you then it goes away, and you get something else, right? Um, does that play a role in what we choose to include in the canon? Maybe even thinking about going forward, you know, what music makes it, and of course we can't know for certain. But does pop, the nature of popular music is uh, that make it a challenge?
1: I think I think there's a lot of things you can still teach that are like kind of kind of timeless, I guess. I mean, like the form of pop songs has stayed like mainly the same with some little tweaks here and there, like the compliment chorus being a thing for these songs. But, um, but also like Alyssa Barna has the dance chorus concept. That's, that's, you know, popular for songs of that era. And, um, so I think we, ha- we keep having these little spins on it, but still basically like verse chorus form remains really important and the things it's, it can be interesting to talk about what makes things sound versey and sound chorusy. Mm. Um, and like there's still stock chord progressions that I think are worth teaching to students so that they can, I think it helps with an oral skill, from an oral skills perspective, like being able to recognize these four chord chunks will help you break these things down faster than if you're just going one chord to the next one chord to the next one chord. Yeah. Um, so, and like syncopation and, and, and phrase structure. I mean, all of these things are kind of, kind of set in stone. Um, for, you know, not for all time, but I think it is like kind of generally, generally true
3: that pop music is still constructed that way. I think one of the interesting things about where we're at with popular music now is because of Spotify and a lot of the sound a lot of the services like that, um, things are so tailored and there's kind of not a set, um, you know, I mean, when I was in high school, everybody listened to the same three radio stations. So we all kind of knew the same songs right. and that's not how it works now at all. Yeah, yeah, And that can be a big downside, but it can also be a big upside because I've noticed that a lot of my students have been exposed to music from the seventies or eighties or nineties that they mm-hmm. maybe never would have encountered otherwise, but it mm-hmm. sounded sort of like something they liked on Spotify. And so now it's feeding into their algorithm. Yeah, um, yeah. So I have found that some of the older stuff, they actually do know. Yeah. Um, You know, if it's managed to find its way into their algorithms somehow or another. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think when I was like, do you all know who Prince is? I think that was one that got me scoffed at. They were like, we're not stupid. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Like, Okay. Okay. All right.
1: (laughs) Sorry. Right. It was like Elton John, I think, it, it was, you know, it's like something like that where I'm like, do you kids even know who this is? And then, I'm like, but then you can have, so
2: I have a bigger class and what happens in my class, a lot of the times so we did Herbie Hancock, Watermelon Man.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Half the class is like, of course. And then the mm-hmm. other half is like, Herbie who? You know, and it was like <laughs> then they were scoffing at the other side of the room. You know, so even like within the
3: class—that's a jazz like, thing,
2: though, right? It's all the jazzers. Yeah, yeah. The jazzers. so the jazz are like of course, you know, of course. That's also
3: yeah, a very nice. divisive tune because I teach that song in jazz theory as well, and they either love it or hate it, and they will mimic that opening um, oh. like oh, flute flutes. riff. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean,
2: it's,
3: so it's kind of interesting, yeah.
2: even if you pick something you may still have you know that group that really knows it and loves it and man follows it to a t but then others are completely clueless to who herbie hancock even is
1: right i don't think mm-hmm. you can assume everyone in your class knows any piece of music at this point yeah, right. like there's mm-hmm. just so many different kinds of people in our classes that mm-hmm. yeah and like we kind of don't believe in the canon so much anymore so right it's like mm-hmm. you can't be like you can't just assume everybody knows even like beethoven symphonies necessarily
3: oh yeah no they don't <laughs> they don't mm-hmm. yep.
1: and it's like you know that's okay but it just means like yeah. i don't know i just think pedagogically it's important to be aware that you can't just assume or like you know even like even like the songs that i may may have sung growing up as a kid that, that i mm-hmm. feel like are just like oh these are just children's songs everybody knows it's like well No, like they're all they all come from different places and everything too Uh so um, even I don't know I can't assume they all know like I've been working on the railroad or something I don't know
3: why that's the one that came to my mind
1: That feels right. like one that might actually be racist. I'll have to Google that. Well, I was That's just going to say,
3: some of them have been, you know, nixed now, too, yeah. for those yeah. reasons. But, right. Yeah, But I feel like that yeah, might be one of them.
1: I, as I say the title, I'm like, sounds like has the it's, potential it's a, to be racist. A yeah. little bit, yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah the little radar goes off there. Like, oh, maybe <laughs> not but do that one. On. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you always just have to go to Google. I have a two-year-old now, and there's always, there's been a few of uh, those where yeah. I'm like, Wait, is this racist? And I think it was like I can't remember. There was one that was like, actually this isn't racist. You might thought you might have assumed that it was racist, <laughs> but it was not. I feel like it was like five little monkeys or something. I was like oh. I feel like I feel like monkeys could be a substitution for something more insidious, but I Googled it and it was like, no, not this one. Not this time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's that's, that's, I feel like that's a, a musicologist's calling right there. Create some type of online resource for like, is this song racist? Racist so or no? Racist yes. or no. Just a quick yes, no. Yeah. Popular musicology right there. Just
1: erase all the nuance. Just everything has to be yes or no. No kind
3: ofs. <laughs> oh, oh gosh.
0: Weird. Oh, wow. It's a spin-off podcast or something right there. Maybe.
1: Was, I did just find it, like, so funny, though, that, like, the Google results were, like, it, 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 it was, like, a suggested search, like, is Five Little Monkeys racist? <laughs> and, and there were, like, tons of things being, like, in in fact is not racist. <laughs> like, because so many people have the same train of thought, right, like, wait thought, a yeah. minute. Yeah. Which
3: There's, is probably good. It's probably yeah. good that people are asking that question, yeah. for sure. Yeah. But. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you With a two-year-old, like with these little, little kids, it's like you just want to keep them pure and cocooned and mm-hmm. like in nothing but light and goodness. So it's like I don't want them absorbing any hint of anything
3: weird. Yeah, yeah. Right, right.
1: I tried showing her she really loves animals and I was like oh I'm gonna show her this video everybody wants to be a cat from the Aristocats and that -hmm. has a super racist part in it and I was like oh oh dear look away yeah look away we ran
2: into that the other day too my daughter's also too same situation
1: yeah yeah I was like oh it's Disney but
2: no don't do it don't go there
1: old Disney is real sketch
2: that way yeah
3: yeah the time I
1: was like, I thought she, so, I just yeah. wanted her to sing about how she would like to be a cat. I think she would. She <laughs> <laughs> okay, has to make it <laughs>
0: racist. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I think Uh-oh. this is kind of could segue to maybe uh, this question on curriculum, right? Because that is that is uh, an issue. Is that we want to have an inclusive classroom? We want to diversify our. Um, our, the music that we're having our students listen to, diversify the types of composers that we are introducing to that, uh, them to, and so have you found any ways that uh, that you've been successfully able to maybe diversify your curriculum or maybe some advice or tips uh, for people who are just looking for other ways to kind of diversify their uh, theory curriculum? There's a
1: lot of resources for like more classical-based courses like there's the um uh, I can't remember what it's called but they, there's a spreadsheet of music by black composers broken down by various theory topics that yeah, is circulating are called
2: research project yes. that's it
1: that's it yeah yes. and there's um, music theory examples by women as well and so those are kind of like some easy ways, like kind of the, the low hanging fruit ways that you can just, you know, swap one of these out for one of those. And if nothing else you've done, you've done that. <laughs> and Because so, I think it is important to recognize like the labor issues aspect of this, like especially for contingent faculty, uh-huh. for graduate students, people who are just overworked and underpaid. Like you do have to, you do have to be aware that like the materials that are available for easy use are often part of the problem of perpetuating this. But then it's like I don't have time to write a new theory textbook. So um, I mean, yeah. So so I acknowledge that, but it's obviously that's not like that's not like the best change. Really, what I really what I try to advocate for is having more repertoire focused theory courses and focusing on different kinds of repertoire besides Western concert music. So. Um, now at Mason I mainly just teach uh, theory for 20th and 21st century music where I do do set theory I do do like I call it triadic post tonality like stuff with triads that's not tonal and um, then I do music and media for the last unit and that last unit really helps open things up um, to a lot of different kinds of composers and um yeah, I think that really. I think it really helps to just like, to just talk about some different kinds of music. And then the other course that I teach is a pop and jazz course, which just um, is kind of like, it, it's super easy to be inclusive and diverse in that setting, because um, there's just so much music to choose from. So yeah, I think there there are things you can do if you are staying focused in a Western art music context. Um, if you go outside of that, it is really easy (laughs) to be more inclusive so it depends on that i and yeah i think even like another really low-hanging fruit i think is communicating clearly to the students that all of these classes are pretty much repertoire based whether you acknowledge it or not so so just keeping in mind if you're if Like, if you're at a school where the traditional theory curriculum is there to stay, you know, nobody's gonna, we're not interested in a pop class here, you know, things like that. Um, I think you can still, like, change it to say, like, this is a course about 18th century music in Europe, you know? (laughs) And that at least helps the students realize that what they're learning is music theory for 18th century European music and not music
0: theory period the end yep. all of music theory yep. <laughs> you know absolutely absolutely yeah so well we are getting close to the end of our time it's really time has flown This has been great to chat with you megan but before we go we always like to kind of have some rapid fire questions uh this is your opportunity to you know make those hot takes uh, little twitter <laughs> okay. twitter bites all right um okay. and so jen or ben do you have a do you have a question? I think I have someone at the door, so
3: I'm going to <laughs> go I have talk one. to them. All right, so why don't you take it away, Jen? I'll go. What is your favorite song you've studied that uses the Yamaha DX7?
1: Um, I really love What's Love Got to Do With It, which I use. Oh,
3: that's such it's a good song. Just, it's
1: so well-constructed, and the more time I spent with it, the more I was like, "What a what a gem of a song. Yeah
3: has staying power too it has it's still a song people know and recognize and yeah
1: yeah yeah that so, harmonica okay, solo so is pretty is... whack but other than that
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> this definitely has a personal bias to it because i'm super into film music what's your favorite um piece of film music
1: uh-oh i don't have a quick answer Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I love the first Lord of the Rings movie. Oh, yeah. So... But I don't know, like...
2: Is that the, the one that starts with know. the Phrygian chant?
1: Yeah. 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 Yeah well Are you thinking like the... Da, 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 da. And, like, it starts out with like... Yeah. I am just trying to it's remember like, which it's one, it's one like that like was. Yeah. It's like an elf elf's melody or something like that. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
0: because, you know, yeah, the that's ones a good who, one, yeah.
2: Lord of the Rings is good.
0: So. All right, so I'm I'm gonna go with my old classic. One six four, five six four, or CAD six four, or something else. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: so I do I do do five six four. Um, I'll allow CAD six four. <laughs> I'll allow it. It's
0: you will, fine. You'll, it's permissible. Just not that 164. Get that out of here. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, it's just, it's not, it's not helpful. Yeah. I just taught a classical form class last, or no, it was a year ago, actually. I taught a classical form seminar to my graduate students last year, and there were some people that just never, never got it. And they were, the thing is, it makes them miss cadences because they you, like, yeah. for example, if the one six four 6 4 is on the first half of the bar and the resolution's in the second half and they're only analyzing one chord per measure, then they don't see the cadence because, and obviously, like, they need to listen, but whatever. Um, they don't see the cadence because they see 1-6-4, then 1, and it's like, no, that was a 5 chord. And if you labeled <laughs> it 5-6-4 and never did one 6 four, like I told you to, you would have found the 5 chord in the second half of the measure, you know? Mm-hmm. So, Yeah gotta be it's gotta be five I'm
0: sorry mm-hmm. yeah, yeah that's
1: I very... went to CUNY we're all Shankarians like I said <laughs> gotta go back yeah. to Shankarians. <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> awesome so um as we're wrapping up can you just uh let our listeners know kind of where um they can find you on yeah. the internet and kind of what you have cooking um as far as your research yeah. now
1: I am 100% on the internet. I have a website that's just Um I'm on Twitter. That's my social media of choice. Um, no Facebook for me. I, I tried it. Didn't like it. <laughs> Sometimes there's. Well, I can't remember who said, like, do you ever feel like we know too much about other people now? <laughs> that's what Facebook is like for me. I, know, I started to know yeah. too much about other people. Anyway, um, what I've got... In the works right now is uh, well, I'm presenting a paper in New Orleans, of uh, about the winter topic in video game music, mm. and it's definitely, it's definitely going in a new direction for me because I collaborated uh, with my husband, who's a data scientist, to do like a computational approach to that, and I'd never done anything like that before in any mm. class or research project of mine at all. So, um, yeah. It's 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 a fun it's a fun uh subject to talk about winter levels in video games so I think it keeps with the fun loving trend of my research.
0: <laughs> so what, what is a cold sound or a
1: Well what do windy? you think?
3: Oh. <laughs> because I
1: wanna know how valid my opinion is.
0: Yeah.
3: I'm trying to picture like in Zelda what the music is when it's when it's like when he's running through the like snow and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I can't I can't think of it. I've only watched my fiancé play Zelda. I haven't played it myself, but uh-huh. I've seen I've seen all in, the seasons In
1: Breath happen. of the Wild, I didn't get a very strong <clears throat> winter topic vibe from the snowy levels there, actually.
3: That makes sense, because I can't... I'm like, yeah. I don't remember it sounding... Other than, like, the way his... Because his feet sound different when right, <laughs> he and runs like, in you, different you'll environments. you always get
1: a lot of wind, but, like, that's not really the yeah. music.
0: it's true. I have to listen to... Um, Next time my girls are playing Animal Crossing and it happens to be winter time. See if, that, if the music is different there.
1: The music, that, the way the music changes from a sunny day to a snowy day at Animal Crossing is a perfect example of, that I use in the talk of, of what winter music means. And so they, um, what they do is they take away the drum set, there's no more drum set, um, and replace it with sleigh bells. Uh-huh. And the bass line is played on the marimba instead of the electric bass guitar. And, or I think they use acoustic bass, whatever. The bass of whatever type is no longer there, and instead the bass line is played by marimba, and they add Glockenspiel to the melody. Yeah. So, what we're going to say the five important characteristics are of winter. Is an absence of drums. Don't
0: tell us all, because people have to come to your presentation. I'll probably forget one. Give us, give us like three. Absence of
1: drums and sleigh bells. Okay, that's two (laughs) out of five. Awesome. Just metallic percussion in general.
0: (laughs) That's great. Oh my gosh! Next time the girls, my girls are playing, I'll be like, tell me when it's winter up there, because I can't stand watching them play that game because it's so boring to me. But they love. (laughs) My brother calls
1: it a chores game. he was like i don't play video games to do chores (laughs) i know (laughs) i don't want to clean up the island can i pay somebody else to do it
0: (laughs) exactly like you don't you don't want to clean up your room but you're picking up all the sticks in the forest like (laughs) right right
1: yes i do like to do chores in video games so i do like animal crossing (laughs) that's great awesome